Welcome to June and Ruby. Happy birthday to Mary. Um, yeah, happy Memorial Day weekend. I don't know if happy is the right word. Blessed Memorial Day weekend, observant Memorial Day weekend. And yeah, just to take this weekend and to remember the great sacrifices that thousands of men and women have made for this country and to preserve the liberty and freedoms that we so often take for granted. Uh, we'll be in, resuming in the Gospel of John this morning. And uh, the passage we're looking at, we're actually only going to cover part of this week. And so I look at this as basically the first part of two. And Lord willing, we'll finish up this section in John chapter 14 next week. But it's all one scene. And so I'm quoting the whole passage this morning. Uh, John chapter 14, beginning in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still not, do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice that you invite us to come to you in prayer. And that is what we do this morning, Lord, in praying for our time as we study in your word that we can be pointed to your truth. Lord, again, on this Memorial Day weekend, we do thank you for the countless sacrifices that, again, so many men and women, and not just them, but their families have made throughout generations. And those who made the ultimate sacrifice for our country, Lord, so that we could have our freedom, Lord. And we thank you for that, and we remember and honor those who have fallen. Lord, I want to pray for Joshua Hall as he's traveling back to South Carolina this summer for uh, work and for different opportunities he has through his university. And Lord, I just want to pray for him for a great summer and for safe travels today. Lord, I thank you for all of the visitors and family members we have with us today. And Lord, I pray that you would bless them and on their travels home, we pray for their safety. And Lord, we again pray for our time as we study in your word that this week and every week we can be pointed to the truth of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, show us the Father... And it is enough for us. Simple enough. That is the plea of the Apostle Philip. And I think that's one that many of us can relate to, at least at times. So honest. So sincere. Life is hard. 
And faith can sometimes be hard. I think it can be easy sometimes to look at stories in the Old Testament of God audibly speaking to prophets or displaying glorious signs to the Israelites and think it would be so much easier to believe if we could just have that. And so as I said a moment ago, we resume in the Gospel of John this morning. And our focus today is on Philip's plea of why God does not more dynamically reveal himself to us. Wouldn't that be so much easier if God wants people to believe? Why not just appear? And to be sure, God could simply appear to us. He could appear in the heavens with glorious and thunderous signs all day, every day, if he wanted to. Or he could have made us with a brain that automatically had faith in him if he wanted to. But that is not how God created us or how he ordains things. Now, the Bible does teach that God wants people to believe in him. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as you some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God does want us to believe. But it's important at the same time to realize that God is not desperate for us to believe. Now, we are not left empty-handed. Just because God does not appear to us in the way which we think would be best, that does not mean that the Lord is unknowable. In theology, there's this term called general revelation. That's the idea that God reveals himself and qualities about himself and his divine nature through creation. That creation itself points to God. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Or again, in Psalm chapter 8, David is writing to the Lord's creation and he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? The Bible teaches that, again, nature itself bears witness to God. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says, What can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. God reveals himself through his world. I think that's part of the reason why we get this sense of awe and wonder when we see a beautiful sunset or the mountains or the ocean or look up at a star-filled sky in the evening. God can be known. There's this creation. It screams that it has a creator. Now, there are dozens of arguments that philosophers and theologians and scientists have made and trying to prove the existence of God. And while none of those arguments gives absolute proof, I believe that the cumulative weight of the arguments gives one plausible answer, a creator God. 
And so one of the things I want to do this morning is just to talk about two of those arguments that we have for the existence of God. And for me personally, I've always found these arguments to be very edifying and encouraging as we consider that our God really, there are rational reasons to believe in him. I did something a little bit similar at Easter when I talked about evidence for the resurrection. And so if you like that sermon, hopefully you'll like this. If you didn't like that sermon, (laughs) God help you. First, we have the cosmological argument. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. And hopefully my goal, both today and every week, is to try to be clear. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. I think that's an idea that we take for granted in every domain of our lives. We never observe anything contrary to this. None of us are worried that while we're sitting here, that right in front of us, a giraffe is just going to pop into being out of nowhere. None of us are worried that at our homes right now, in our living rooms, a a tank is just going to appear out of nowhere. None of us are worried that when we're driving home after church, that another planet is just going to pop into existence out of nothing right in the middle of the road. None of us... This one we probably would want. None of us ever have extra money just materialize in our wallets out of nowhere. Why? Because nothing comes from nowhere. And yet some want to treat the very existence of the universe as if that's one gigantic exception to that. And that nothing happens unprovoked except for everything in the entire universe. And so that's the first premise. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. We all know intuitively that whatever begins to exist has a cause. Now we go to our second point, that the universe began to exist. And it's interesting that that's something that is increasingly agreed upon among physicists and cosmologists. If I was preaching this message a century ago... The conventional wisdom at the time was that the universe was eternal and had always existed. And so for Christians, the big leap of faith was believing in Genesis 1 that God had created the heavens and the earth. But as equipment and telescopes have gotten more and more sophisticated and instruments for measurement have gotten more and more sophisticated, there is more and more evidence that the universe has a beginning. And where does the Bible begin? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that is what happens in creation. That there was literally nothing. And that time, space, matter, energy began. From the fact that the universe is expanding, that the universe is cooling off, from the laws of thermodynamics, all of that implies a finite beginning of the universe. And then there's the logical problem that the universe has to be finite because if it were, this will get a little bit more obscure. If it was infinitely old, we could never get to this point. Because if there was an infinite amount of time before today, we would never be here because it would necessarily be finite. Again, that's a little bit more obscure. But there are other reasons also from science and math and logic as to why the universe 
has a beginning. And some theoretical physicists have tried to speculate different reasons as to why the universe might not be this way, but the evidence that they actually have continually points to the universe having a beginning. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. The universe has a cause. Whatever the cause is would have to be powerful. Whatever the cause is would have to be immaterial because all matter was created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Whatever the causes would have to be transcendent of time because time is created. It would have to be an uncaused cause. Powerful, immaterial, transcendent. And I'll argue in my next point that it would also have to be intelligent. Why? Because of the way in which the universe is ordered. And that's my second argument that I'm going to give for the existence of God. The argument of intelligent design, if you want a bigger word, sometimes called the teleological argument. There's a famous analogy from an 18th and 19th century philosopher named William Paley called the watchmaker. And the argument basically goes that if you're walking through the woods and you came across a watch on the ground and you're examining the watch and the gears and how they're interlocking and working together, the precision and regularity with which the second hand is ticking off, that you wouldn't look at that watch and think, I bet that this is just the byproduct of thousands or millions of years of weather and erosion and wind and rain just naturally formed this watch. You would know that it was made by a watchmaker. Or a friend of mine uh, from seminary went to Mount Rushmore a few years ago. And he took a video of himself looking at Mount Rushmore. And he was obviously joking when he said this, but he talked about the, the faces in Mount Rushmore, how it was amazing what just time and wind and erosion had done, that it happened to form the faces of four of our former presidents in that mountain. Now, again, obviously he was joking because it wasn't random, that it was done intentionally. It was planned. Obviously, any rational person would know that the watch that you found in the woods was something that was made. Now, when we look at the universe and we look at existence and we look at our world, the delicate balance of life, the laws of physics and chemistry and biology, the predictable regularity of how these work in our world, the complicated balance of life and our ecosystem and the way it all works together, it's astounding. The fact that our world is capable of sustaining life and how that all works together. And that it is more plausible that that is the product of design than of just random chance. Now, with life on earth, sure, a person could try to explain that away and argue that everything just evolved with the conditions that they had. Or maybe it's the laws of science that govern the universe. But the issue is so much deeper than that. Where do the laws of science come from? The laws of physics and chemistry and biology. If there used to be nothing and now there's something, did those laws create themselves? Over the last couple of generations, 
physicists and astronomers have noticed more and more the precision and fine-tuning which our universe is governed by. That there are 30 constants where even minuscule changes would either make the existence of our universe and life either impossible or radically different. And I think, again, that that should be something that is encouraging to our hearts, that we are not here by accident. To quote from the physicist Paul C. Davies, To see the problem, imagine playing God with the cosmos. Before you is a designer machine that lets you tinker with the basics of physics. Twiddle this knob and you make electrons a bit lighter. Twiddle that one and you make gravity a bit stronger, and so on. It happens that you need to set 30-something knobs to fully describe the world around us. The crucial point is that some of those metaphorical knobs must be tuned very precisely or the universe would be sterile. So the idea that the universe just sprang into being randomly and that all of these incredibly precise scientific variables just happen to be perfectly set for the universe... To quote the apologist Frank Turek, that that's a bigger leap of faith than believing in the God who created the universe. To think that it just all randomly happened. To give one example, gravity. If the gravitational force had been altered by one part in 10 to the 40th powers, stars would not exist and neither would we. Now, one in 10 to the 40th power is an inconceivably big number. So imagine that you had a tape measure that stretched across the universe and was measuring in inch markers. If you were to move that inch marker of gravity just one inch, that life would be impossible. And there are other constants like that where unfathomably small changes would cause us not to be here. And again, there are other examples. I've heard many say, physicists and apologists, that it's balanced on a razor's edge. And again, I would argue that believing in that is a bigger leap of faith than believing in God. Creation points to a creator. So with general revelation and the arguments we have for the existence of God, when the question arises of why doesn't God just reveal himself, he does. Just not maybe always in the way we would prefer. It can be easy to think, if only I had this piece of evidence, it would be easier to believe. But I think that underestimates the pride of the human heart. In the Bible, we see plenty of activity from God. We see him interacting with the Israelites during their exodus wanderings. They still sin and rebel. Because just because you believe something is true does not mean that your life is changed by it. God does not want us to give some vague assent, yeah, I think he's real. He wants us to have a relationship with him. Just because you believe something doesn't mean your life is changed by it. Millions of people smoke cigarettes knowing that they're harmful. I think most of us know 
what to do in lots of areas of life to succeed. I'm sure in school, some of us were pretty good students, some of us maybe not. I think we all knew what you needed to do to be a good student. Study, pay attention, ask questions, work hard. Same thing is true for jobs that we have. Work, learn, put in the time. I think the same is true for marriage. Listen, communicate, work at things, grow together. We know, but 50% of marriages end in divorce. We know what we need to do oftentimes. We know what we need to do to be healthy. Just because we know something doesn't mean that our life is actually changed by what we know. And we can know that God is real, but that doesn't always change a person's life. Why? As Jesus said in John 3.17, because men love darkness rather than the light. The Apostle Paul sums up the condition of the human heart in Romans chapter 1. I quoted part of this section earlier this morning. Romans 1, beginning in verse 19 through 21. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they came futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And the issue is not a lack of reasons or a lack of evidence to believe in God. But again, just thinking that God exists is not what it's all about. Because the God who created the universe, the God who created the heavens and the earth, is powerful, immaterial, transcendent, intelligent, and personal. Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. That's what Philip says to Jesus on the night before he goes to the cross. But instead of coming in thunderous glory in the clouds or speaking with a voice from the heavens, instead of that, we have a God who became one of us. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That we are invited to know God. That he invites us into a relationship with him. And it is Jesus who makes him known. John 1.18 No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. God appeared to the world in the person and the work of Christ. That the Son of God does the works of God in the world. And displays the glory of God to the world. And brings the light of God to the world. That the Lord who created time entered into time. The Lord of history entered into history. And the Lord who created man took on flesh. And we see the response that Jesus gives to Philip in verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? All this time, Philip had seen Jesus. He had seen his righteous life. He had personally heard his teaching. He had seen the word made flesh 
who dwelt among us. And yet, Philip still wanted a greater sign. Jesus is the greater sign. He is the fuller revelation of the truth of God. He is the one who makes the Father known. There is no greater sign. Jesus shows God. He is the way to God because Jesus is one with the Father. Verse 10, Jesus says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus reveals the Lord to the world, that that is the greatest sign that we have of God and of the love of God and of the relationship that God invites us into. Jesus, his teachings, his life, his ministry, his gospel. There's a book, I think it's called Stay Salt, came out last year by a woman named Rebecca Pippert who used to be an agnostic. And she has this quote in her book that I, I thought is such a good illustration. One sunny day I stretched out on the lawn when I noticed that some ants were busy building a mound. I began to redirect their steps with twigs and leaves, but they simply bounced off and started a new ant mound. I thought, this is like being God. I am redirecting their steps, and they don't even realize it. At one point, two ants crawled onto my hands, and I thought, wouldn't it be funny if one ant turned to the other and said, do you believe in Becky? Do you believe Becky really exists? I imagined the other ant answering, don't be ridiculous. Becky's a myth or a fairy tale. How comical. I thought the hubris of an ant declaring that I don't exist when I could easily blow it off my hand. But what if the other ant said, oh, I believe Becky exists. How would they resolve it? How could they know that I am real? I thought. What would I have to do to reveal to them who I am? Suddenly I realized the only way to reveal who I am in a way that they could understand would be to become an ant myself. I would have to identify totally with their sphere of reality. I sat upright, and I remember thinking, what an amazing thought. The scaling down of the size of me to perfectly represent who I am in the form of an ant? I know. I would have to do tricks, things that no other ant could do. Then it hit me. I had just solved my problem of how finite creatures could ever discover God. God would have to come to us from outside and reveal who he is. End quote. In the difficulties of life, God can seem di- distant. It can happen in the dark nights of the soul, when we feel stagnant or like we've walked away from our faith, when we're going through tough times or personal struggles or crises. But Jesus came to be with us in the most personal of ways. He lived a life in the world. He was born. He lived and died. He endured what life throws at people to the point of going to the cross and being betrayed and dying. But all of that was for a greater purpose, so that we could know God, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have the way to God. Philip asked Jesus, for God to reveal himself in a greater way. And the irony was that God had already done that. Would you pray with me?
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. And again, we praise you that you make yourself known, Lord, through your creation. The heavens declare your glory. And as we, as your creatures, may we do the same. In Jesus' name, amen.